Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault and violence against women. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. If you're concerned for your own or someone else's safety, call 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in Australia and it's an emergency, dial triple zero. Please listen with care. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a compelling conversation with former New South Wales Police Sergeant Danny McCarty. And I just remember saying a little prayer going, this is how it ends. And my last sort of words were, I jump on like bang sound 45 urgent, and that's the last thing I say. Danny was involved in three of Sydney's highest profile cases during his time in the job. The Sydney gang rapes of 2000, the Cronulla Riots, 2005, through to the Lint Cafe siege of 2014. Now, this conversation really speaks for itself, so I won't spend too much time up at the top here. What I will say is that Danny is an engaging figure, and some of the stories he tells are just remarkable. Before all that, though, we'll kick off the conversation at the beginning of Danny's career, when he was a young bloke, just out of school, just trying to figure it all out. I believe you did a science degree, Sydney Uni, just down the road from the studio where we're sitting, and you had a bit of an idea of it going into maybe forensics, crime scene investigation, and, and then you went into the police. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, uh, much to my uh, ethnic parents' horror, I ended up pursuing a different career. I would initially um, went into uni considering that I would probably go into a medical career. So I'd start off with the science degree and then sit an exam that hopefully opens up doors in the, in the medical space. But I wasn't as smart as I thought it was, you know. So at the end of the day, I ended up getting quite bored by the end of the degree, to be honest with you. And I couldn't see myself in a lab coat playing with Bunsen burners and test tubes. But on one particular day, I was with my wife and uh, she was getting some career guidance. And the careers advisor ended up being my old year nine commerce teacher. And so, you know, we, he forgets all about her and we start talking and, you know, reminiscing. And he's asking me, what are you doing? And I tell him, told him, he goes, well, how are you finding it? I go, look, I'm actually quite bored. He said, you know what? The police are looking for officers with science backgrounds. I'm like, the police? And he said, yeah. He goes, like, crime scene investigation. I thought, that sounds all right. So it wasn't exactly a a great internet back in those days. And so I just did a bit of research to see what I could do. And I thought, this sounds all right. Then the police were giving scholarships for people with degrees for the academy. So I just put my hat in the ring and I got it. I I got the scholarship. Yeah, next thing I knew, I'd uh, join the New South Wales Police Force. Wow. And you mentioned uh, much to the chagrin of your uh, <laughs> your parents. Danny, you come from a, a Lebanese background. Yes. Born and bred in Australia, but m- mum and dad migrated back in the 70s. You speak all Arabic dialects. Yes. That's my understanding. And 
if my research is right, Danny, that was picked up on fairly soon in the piece. And I think there was a lovely quote from you saying that in your first 18 months in the job where, you know, you're sort of a, a young probationary constable, usually sitting in the car going to shoplifting and things like that, you dealt with more murderers than you did shoplifters in that oh, yeah, first 18 far. months. By far, by far. You were working down around southwest of Sydney where there was, at the time, some fairly heavy crime families down there, Middle Eastern connections, Middle Eastern backgrounds. I policed in a city that I grew up in, and but goodness me, don't you see a different side of that society when you're suddenly looking at it from a policing perspective? Absolutely. And I mean, what was funny was when I um, put in my application of where I wanted to do, even just work experience, which station I wanted to do placement at, one of the inspectors at the academy was like, isn't that where you live? And I said, yeah. And I go, I'll have, an, I'll have the hometown advantage. I'll know the streets backwards. I wonder, you know. And he goes, you might have some ramifications because, you know, what about officer safety and all that kind of stuff? And I'd never seen the community as, as an enemy. It was not really a consideration, but I also, when I made the resolution that I would join the cops, I wanted to make an impact for my community. So I'm like, well, it makes no sense for me to run away from the hub. So... Yeah, I made the decision to do placement there, and then subsequently, I, I also made an application to be posted there. And I, because I was the only one in five hundred that actually asked for back there, <laughs> of course, I was going to get it. <laughs> yes, yes, and and having that, um, just having that language as part of your background, that must have really helped too. I, I'd imagine with intelligence and different things like that, as as you moved in through the job a little further, perhaps. Look, it, it definitely, you know, it's a double-edged sword, I suppose. You know, mm. I, I was doing a lot more work than anybody else in, in my cohort. Um, and as a probationary constable, you would not be expected to be jumping on strike forces. And that's the thing, and I'm not to correct you, but I was not actually a detective senior sergeant. I was a sergeant. I never got designated as a detective, though okay. I spent a significant amount of my career in strike forces of very, very serious crimes. I had been asked to follow the detective path. And I had made a decision that I would work on bridging as opposed to prosecuting. Um, I said, there's plenty of detectives that do amazing work. There aren't too many of me around right. to do what I need to do. Yeah. Um, so I tried to, as much as I can, be more proactive and be the bridge as opposed to, but I worked alongside some of the greatest detectives in the country. Mm. All my interviewing skills, all my investigative skills have come from that mentoring. Wow. I just couldn't be the person putting them away. Interesting. And, and just on that, you, know, you grow up in an environment, you go there policing, and um, you'd be crossing paths with folks you're at school with, guys that you would have known. And then, you know, you introduce uh, the you know, drug use and, and crime and things such. It's a lot of confronting situations, I'm sure. Absolutely. My first sort of aha moment of 50,000 after it was having my name called out by a person who was almost completely knocked out on an OD, still had the syringe in his arm. You know, we we're going through this this hotel, and I use the term loosely as hotel, and going through the fire exits because you know that's where they all scurry when we when we come in to to do a raid. And I'd almost stepped on his arm because he was in the in the stairwell, and he he recognized he said my name. And I looked down, and it was someone I went to school with. And I remember him saying, "Hey, Danny, you search me. Don't let the others search me. I don't want to get bashed." And he goes, "But listen, in my pocket, there's a fit." He just told me exactly where every blade was, where, and he, you know, and I'm just like thinking to myself, this guy used to be like. Our halfback for the high school team, just so much promise. It, it really was very confronting for That's me. It's confronting. Yeah. There, there he was lying on the deck with a syringe in his arm. And yeah. Gee whiz. Danny, 2000, you, you wouldn't have even completed your first year at that point as a probationary constable. Um, this was the uh, the year of the uh, the Sydney, the media called them, you know, the Sydney gang rapes, the Bankstown gang rapes. Um, 
This is something that particularly those listening in from Sydney, New South Wales, I think would have a a clear memory of, um, and possibly those from further afield. Between August and September 2000, six young women repeatedly gang raped over four separate uh, dates across that two-month period. 14 offenders identified, led by uh, Bill Ascaf, um, a fairly infamous name now in, uh, in New South Wales. He was 19 years old at the time, received a 31-year imprisonment term with regards to his involvement. Nine other offenders out of the 14 uh, were sentenced to a total of 240 years in prison. This was, at the time, probably one of the most horrendous sexual crime cases New South Wales, probably Australia, had seen. It led to law changes um, in New South Wales, quite significant law changes. As you'd know, the law changes at glacial speed. Things don't change too much. This led to a change with regards to aggravated sexual assault in company, which the media would call a gang rape. Yes. Uh, with those particular emphasis on those where um, actual bodily harm is inflicted on the victims or they're deprived of liberty. So if they're you know, abducted or taken somewhere, imprisonment terms went from a maximum 20 to life. Imprisonment, which in New South Wales, other states are different, is for the term of your natural life. Now, the, the, this is this is a reaction to what was um, a series of horrendous, horrendous crimes. Danny, my understanding is that as a young probationary constable, you, you actually found the second victim of those gang rapes unconscious in a park in Green Greenacre. Is, is 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 that correct? It was in Bankstown. In Bankstown. Um, so she was the. the there isn't too much focus on her because she didn't come forward. Um, she actually went went into hiding. So the situation was, it was, you know, briefing, you know, your parade on the on day shift. So like six o'clock in the morning, as the junior, I'm I'm getting the car ready and getting all the paperwork. You know what it's like, you know, you got to pay your dues. And I had a female offside of that day, um, which played a huge role. At the briefing, the inspector came down and said, look, we've had another abduction. We think it's the same as the first a white van was used. She was sort of groomed over MSN chat. Um, no one's heard from her since. She was at, you know, picked up at Bankstown Railway, all this kind of stuff. Um, so they asked all the cars on day shift to go and search, say, every park in the, in the patrol. In those days, I don't know, I think we probably got about maybe 12 parks each to go look for. The second park on my list was where we found the girl. My partner and I had just sort of split up so we could look at opposite ends of the of the park kind of thing. And I'm walking forward and I see in the distance what looked like a body on the ground. It looked like somebody was hunched over it. So I'm thinking, oh God, they're still here. And I just sprinted, right? So I'm running towards them, getting ready to to take on this guy. And then as I slowed down, I, I'd worked out it was, it, it was someone um, that must have known her because he was sort of crying and trying to wake her up. And then that ended up being her dad. So it was her father that found her first. And I was looking around at all the paraphernalia, like there was tissues and there was, you know, prophylactics. And, and I'm like, oh, like we're interfering with the scene here. And like, how do I get this dad away from, and just the humanity of it. What do you tell this dad? What do you, you know, not to, not to touch anything. And I'm like, and the girl's health is of primary concern for us. Subsequently, my, my offside, I took her to do a sexual assault kit and I stayed with the dad for a bit. And then I had to guard the crime scene. And, you know, um, what was, what was interesting is, I'm the person that told Scaff's parents what happened because his younger brother, as you said, he was, he was 16 at the time, which meant I could tell the parents everything. When he got picked up much later, our bicycle sort of team uh, did the arrest on the Scaff boys when I was in, on duty at the station. Again, being the junior, you get the station duty. Yeah. 
and again, with my luck, every time I was on station duty, something significant happened. Um, in comes um, the, the parents of SCAF, and they don't speak much English. So I tell them in Arabic, I go, this is what's happened. And I just remember the look on the dad, complete utter disbelief. Because He definitely were, hadn't heard that from his son. And they were decent people. He yeah, were quite yeah, respected yeah. within the community, yep. uh, mum and dad, yep. and both sons involved in this yeah. horrendous crime. And like the ringleader. Like, oh, yes, yes. It, yes. Was, it was significant. This is, you're talking like a 16-year-old kid with his you know, 19-year-old brother. Just to circle back, Danny, you talk about the conflict as a, as a young police officer with you arriving at the scene, you, you know, oh my goodness, there's something horrendous has happened here, it's part of a larger crime, but then you've got the father, tragically, of this young girl. You take him aside, what's it like talking to a father, to a parent, in, in a situation like that? It's terrible, and at the time, I'd still really young, like I'm in my early 20s, I haven't been a dad yet. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what can I possibly say to this guy? I know how you feel. No. What do you say to this, to this guy? I remember just saying to him, well, I thought, what would I want? I just said to him, mate, we'll, we'll get him. We'll find him. We'll find him. We'll make, someone will pay for this. You'd remember that discussion. You'd oh, yeah. That chat. Vividly. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, young police officers often find themselves, just as you said, the nature of the job when you first come in, you have all these experiences, just one after the other, and going into domestics and things informing the parents, the SCAF parents, it's, and it's like, you know, knocking on a door to tell parents that their young ones uh, have been killed in a fatal and things such as that. You sort of receive some sort of training on this at the academy, but when you're there and it's happening and they're in front of you, my memory of it was you got really no idea what to say. And, and then in essence, probably it doesn't make that much difference anyway, because what's happened is so, is so horrendous. As a young police officer, having involvement in something of, of that severity, did it affect you in any way or, or, or your view of the society in which that you were policing in? Did it, did it have a positive, negative impact? It became like the phoenix rising. Like it was the, the awareness of what is happening in the underbelly of the world, right? I quickly realized that there was a significant problem um, happening in, in this part of the world. Bankstown at the time was the murder capital of the country. Stolen motor vehicle capital of the country, serious crime. You know, we were a category one station and our categories based on your volume of serious crime. We had about 300 police officers. We were the largest station. We were just on the go all the time. It was just murder after murder after. Like it was just, um, and it was not just the Middle East and there was a fair amount of Southeast Asian crime. There was all these squads, right? We got to understand too, it's the demographics of the population. So I wouldn't say there was over-representation of any particular ethnicity. It was just because that was an enclave. So that's where everyone lived. If you're going to police there, that's, the, that's your population, right? But it also showed me that there needed to be some proactive steps being taken within the community as well to stop this cycle. And 300 police, you may not know the answer. How many of them would have come from, like yourself, a Lebanese Middle Eastern background, policing no, I, in that area? I would know. Um, <laughs> uh, at the, when I first started, there had been one officer preceding me, but he'd moved out for a sea change. He'd gone country. So at the time, it was just me. And then for about probably a year, 18 months, another person of a similar background joined. But in terms of our whole region, yeah, you could count them on one hand eventually we the numbers started to, to get quite high. And there was precedence now. Now we'd all been sort of been in for a while. Yeah. But, and that's kind of what made things good and bad for me because no one was expecting anyone to understand the language. So I'd go to search warrants and they wouldn't pick me, right? Yes. I look yes. very different then. There's no beard. Now I was a lot lighter. Yeah. And 
I'm just understanding what they're saying. Oh, the gun's here, the drugs are there. Don't, don't worry, we've already moved them off. They're not going to find anything. I'd yes. be like, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> yes. Jeez, mate. You would have been very – the old detectives, mate, drug squad, everything, they'd have been, um, they'd have been tapping you on the shoulder oh, yeah, a fair yeah. bit. Like uh, I said, I did so, much, so many strike forces. I, quite, I can't remember how many. I it bet. was ridiculous. But isn't that interesting that uh, for that 12 or 18 months in an environment where, sadly, there was a, you know, a lot of very serious crime – you're the only officer with any Middle Eastern background and any language skills with regards to that. So uh, let's hope things have uh, changed a little so now. They have significantly. Yeah. Yes. Um, the Cronulla Riots, 2005. Again, many folks listening in, particularly around New South Wales, will have very, very vivid memories of this. I think it's fair to say these were racially motivated riots in and around Cronulla Beach, sparked by ongoing racial tension. And the spark, I think, that ignited this from my research was a, a relatively minor incident, 4th of December, between two off-duty lifeguards and four young Lebanese males on the beach. And there was a little bit of a you know, scuffle, but as often happens, right-wing media grabbed hold of this, took it by the horns, the likes of Alan Jones and others, stoked a lot of anti-Middle Eastern sentiment. And within a week, we have 5,000 folks gathered down at North Cronulla Beach and everything blows up. I can still see clearly the the shots of the mob, you know, these sort of spittle coming out of their mouth and all the aggression toward anybody who looked remotely Middle Eastern or whatever, Indian, Pakistan, whatever. You know, it was just horrendous. Then, of course, the pendulum swung back the other way. By that evening, we get, understandably, retaliation coming back into Cronulla, they estimate 80 to 100 cars travelling in from Punchbowl in towards the eastern suburbs. Numerous attacks, uh, property damage, sort of general carnage, that type of thing. Danny, you got involved after that initial flare-up when intelligence was suggesting some of the gangs down around Maroubra, some white supremacist groups, were planning an attack on Lakemba Mosque. Correct. Lakemba was an area that you were very much a community police officer. You were, I think, uh, the community son, if I could. I <laughs> yeah. think that was your label. Yeah. Can you talk us through that period and, and, and your involvement uh, involvement there, Danny? Lakemba Mosque itself was probably the preeminent community mosque for the you know for the Islamic uh, faith. It signifies a huge um, sort of place for the Lebanese community um, of Islamic faith. And every year when it, um, there's two, say, like Ramadan and and the other E, that, are, that there's functions and celebrations there. So every year I would go down and I'd be the, the police officer that would be dealing with, you know, the celebrations, that kind of stuff, help with crowds, help with different things. And so bit by bit, I was more and more entrenched in the community around Lakemba because Lakemba's not in my patrol. It's the adjoining patrol to me. I, I was in Bankstown. Lakemba's part of Kamsi's patrol. But because of my background and then the, the familiarity with the, with the population, I would be allowed to go there. And you're in uniform. You're I'm in uniform. uniform. It's, yes. full, it's, a, yes. it's a full twelve-hour shift. You know, yes. one yes. of the better shifts because it was warm and fuzzy stuff. It was rapport building. It was community engagement. You know, it wasn't any, anything else other than like no, kind of law enforcement. So I'd been there for five years at that stage. So I had a good, good sort of relationship, good rapport building, and boy, did it come in handy. So I wasn't working the day of the ride on the Sunday, but I got called into work on the Monday when the intel started coming in about these alleged threats. on the, we, now we knew it was rubbish. Right? Everyone in, the, in our sort of circles was like, there's no way the Bra boys are coming over and going to punch on at Lakemba. Like, if you're going to punch on with us, punch on us in Maroubra. You're not going to do that at Lakemba Mosque, right? Yes. The problem is, you know, this rhetoric, it just spread like wildfire. And this is one of those things about incite riot sort of legislation was really sort of getting looked at now after this. You know, I remember I was part of that roundtable. And what was 
What was interesting is like I got sent there really early in the day just to see what's happening, get the lay of the land, take, you know, sort of take the temperature. And there was nothing doing. It was the normal people. I knew the locals and they knew. Like they'd heard it and they were just laughing at it. So every time someone young would come past, they'd try to try to tell them, just go home. But I don't know what happened in terms of it escalating to different communities. And I knew people were getting on flights from Melbourne and the Gold Coast to fly over mm. to defend the mosque. Right. And this wasn't just Middle Eastern, nor was it just Muslim people. It was just every kind of ethnic. Okay. Right? okay. So all of a sudden I've got- Italians, yeah, Greeks. Yeah, <laughs> Italians, Greeks. I've got these big gold crucifixes. Like it was just hilarious, you know. <laughs> it, if it did end up being quite serious, the juxtaposition of it was, was yes. quite comical. Yes. Um, but the crowd swelled to thousands from like five. It just- so quick. How quick did that happen? Look, for me, because of what happened, there's a lot of trauma there probably. So for me, it felt like it was extremely quick because all of a sudden I found myself under attack. You, know? you used that um, word trauma. What what do you relate that to in that in that instance? So what happened was when the crowds were quite large, there was nothing for, no one for them to fight with because no one came. There was, at that stage, maybe four of us, police on duty. And where would you have that four against thousands? That's how good the crowd was, right? It's fine because there's just nothing doing. Who are they going to fight with? Yeah. And then I saw the crowd shift their attention to someone. You know, everyone just sort of looked to this one point. And as I looked, I saw this freelance photographer. He came out with a video camera and he was just aiming at the mosque, taking footage. I don't know why. I think it was just the temperature of the day. They just made a beeline for him. Okay. And so I ran ahead of the crowd towards him going, just go. Mm. And then he, this idiot wants to... No, I have freedom of the press and give me a badge number. I'm like, get in the car and tell your kids mm. I saved your life. Mm. Get the hell mm. out of here. Complain all you like. Anyway, I'll get rid of him. I'm pretty happy with myself. Mm. I'll turn around and the crowd's not impressed. So they run for me. Okay. And they're like, get the cop. Yeah. yeah and I yeah, was like, yeah. oh, what am I going to do? Shoot the crowd? Yeah. And I just remember saying a little prayer going, this is, this is how it ends. Wow. And my last sort of words were, I jump on like bang sound 45 urgent. And that's the last thing I say. So that triggers a signal one because yeah. they can't raise me anymore. And so they- it Just tell the audience what a signal one yeah, is. Yeah. So a signal one is like your kind of, you know, if you want to call officer down kind of thing, it's basically asking for all police that are listening to this broadcast, get there and get there quick. Everyone drops everything and yeah. you head in because there's a copper in, in imminent danger. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't call the signal one, but because they couldn't raise me and because I was very busy, the last thing they knew was thousands of people running towards me. That's my last call. Um, so, it was. I mean, so, you can laugh about it now, mate. Uh, it, but, was, uh, it, was, it was crazy because, so then I'm looking around and I'm just like kind of bracing for impact. Like I, I get, I, I was not going to sh- sh- use my firearm. And then just as the crowd ran, it looked like they hit something and just stopped. And I could see like the impact, like a wave crashing. And it was people from the local community had formed a human chain around me. It was just so surreal. They were copping punches to the back of their head. They were copping shopping trolleys. They were just copping it for me. You know, I was like, unbelievable. And um, I remember the liaison officer that was there, he's a civilian. He goes, this is your thank you for all the years. The Lint Cafe... Siege. Um, this was December 2014, 15th to 16th, a 16-hour standoff that brought downtown Sydney to a literally to a standstill. Um, uh, a lone gunman, a uh, man, Harlan Monis, held 10 customers, eight employees hostage at Lynn Cafe, Martin Place. 16-hour standoff culminated with one of the hostages being killed by Monis. One of the hostages was killed in crossfire, a ricochet bullet that was shot, shot by police. 
Monis himself, killed by the police on scene, a couple of hostages, police injured. Danny, you had some involvement in this. You, you got notified of this very early yep. in the piece. Just tell us a bit about that. So you know how it's like, mate, whenever you're looking forward to a day off, it doesn't happen. So I had just finished my run of shifts. I was working as a, a team leader, a, a sergeant of general duties at Campsy at the time. Um, and just finished my night shift, sort of uh, last night shift, so enjoying probably four or five days off back then. And I remember I'd gone to a to a local cafe, grabbing a coffee really early in the morning. Well, it could have been around seven in the morning. I can't remember exactly what it was. It'd be close to that. I get a phone call from one of the detectives who's in the counterterrorism unit. And I thought it was just social, you know. He goes, hey, uh, where are you? I go, I'm at the cafe. Come down, you know. So he goes, no, no, I'm at work. And I remember thinking that's a bit strange for him to be working at that time. He said, are you near a TV? And I'm like, yeah, the cafe's got one. He goes, uh, look at Channel 7. And it was on Channel 7. Well, they're right across the road. Yeah, Channel yeah. 7 from the, right. from the cafe. That's right. Yeah. And I looked at yeah. the Channel 7 um, playing um, in the cafe and it had uh, live armed robbery at Link, like Martin Place. And I go, okay, um, you know how we are, armed robbery, yeah, whatever. Like, And he goes, not a robbery, come in. And I went, okay. So I knew you couldn't explain any further. Then I'm getting calls from my bosses going, are you coming? Yeah, I'm coming in. Like, then no one's elaborating over the phone. Get into the station and they brief me that we've had a series of incidents around the CBD of Sydney and the Martin Place thing is linked to these incidents. So we're thinking international coordinated attack, right? Something Australia's never seen in its life. Why did counterterrorism reach out to you? What are they looking for from you? So I had done the terrorism investigators course, the first non-designated detective to do that course. And I had a particular good network if you wanted to find certain people, I'd had the means of finding them. And they had concerns over the identity. We didn't, they didn't know who he was at this stage. I put together a team to identify who this person was, and we did that. So the team that I was a part of identified Man Monis, and then we started finding everyone attached to him. And so his wife was a key person of interest because she was a co-offender in the current case. They were both reporting on bail. She didn't turn up to report on bail and neither did he, obviously, because he was at Martin Place. So we had suspicion that, you know, Intel was, she might have a remote detonator device, hence why you couldn't take him out. Because he, he had mentioned to police, and I guess quite cleverly, that there was a number of bombs, explosives around Sydney that would be detonated if something happened to him or if, if they didn't follow his instructions yes. or something. Yeah, such the as issue that. was, and if you... I strongly suggest people that want to know the, the real story about this is to, is to get the book Tiger, 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 written by the person who ends up shooting and killing Man Monis from the TOU, a good friend of mine. And TOU being the, the... Tactical Operations Unit. So like our version of the SWAT team, probably the bravest people you ever meet in your life. And there was evidence that there were multiple dev devices around key icons in Sydney. Hence, there was like, do we evacuate the city? Like, there was all these questions. Wow, wow. It was so much bigger than what the public think it was. Right, right. This is all going on behind the scenes. This is all going on. This is happening in real time. And the it, interesting thing too, Danny, is anyone who's near a TV screen is watching this, thinking they're part of this thing there, where, interestingly, ironic, what you're saying is there was a hot layer upon layer upon layer going on behind this that no one will probably ever be aware of. No, it was so bad because there was so many different layers of complexity so many jurisdictions coming into play. Yes. You're briefing the prime minister by the hour, right? And Australia's not used to this. We've never mm. done this. And so we're enacting these operational and tactical options that you've only ever trained for. Yeah. And, you know, training in real life are very different. Yeah. You know, there's a lot 
that I can't discuss. Of but, course. But at the end of the day, it's definitely not what the public thought it was. And so that you're sitting there and there's all these armchair critics going, oh, we can just take him out. And I'm like, yeah, talk to the sniper that was ready to take him out and who had to leave. He never worked again after that, right? And again, read the book. It tells you the truth. The issue is that when you're in a situation where you could possibly have multiple devices going off, hundreds of thousands of people's lives are at stake. The panic of an evacuation usually can be worse than the incident itself. All of a sudden, you're crowd crushing and all this kind of stuff to consider as well. Mm. Bottlenecks in the city and our CBD is not, it's not geared for it. I mean, look what happens when that one train line goes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Multiply yeah. that by a thousand. Yeah. And then it was all these possible suspects that could be his supporters. We had to go find them, make sure that they're not there. So that was part of the, that part of the mandate for us. Go find these persons of interest, make sure they're still around. And then also, I guess, at the scene at the time, Who's calling the shot? Yeah, great Who's, question. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know what it's like when you get, you know, units coming together and something like this. My understanding looking back is that one of the areas of concern was that, you know, to, just to get a command through, it had to go through all these different channels and then come all the way back again. And, and it was almost like the left hand wasn't quite sure what the right hand was doing. Yeah. you got, Even on the, like on the terrorism course itself, you're trained on a rolling scenario. There's a wonderful facility that we use that basically lets you be recorded audio-visually in 24-7 as you're given key decisions to make, right? Very intense. It really mimics um, real-life pressure. And the rolling scenario that was used in, that, in our terrorism course was something that was kind of close to what, what Link Cafe was. It was something where we almost had, we had a near-miss in Australia a little while, a little few years before. And so even that scenario didn't go that far because we never experienced it. So we don't know what happens, right? Yes. And it ends on a cliffhanger kind of thing. But that's the training that you've got. So the infrastructure was in place. So then you've got certain commands coming in. Now it's this commander. And he's, as long as he's terrorism trained, he calls the shots and then his shift ends and your hands over to the next one. As you said, it's 16 hours, right? All in all, then you've got all these people that are part of the hierarchy who are not part of this scenario, but their rank signifies that they've got some kind of level of authority. And that's not discounting the international allies we've got and what they believe should happen. I would hate to be the prime minister in that situation because he's just getting yeah, yeah, advice yeah. from all kinds of people. But no one's done this in this country ever yes. before. Everything's a hypothetical. And Australia has its own unique population, its own unique challenges. And so it needs to police itself. It can't go off what happens internationally. And then that begs the question, who is the person actually driving or controlling the scene, yeah. who is making the decisions. Yep. But lessons learned, do you think that if, if something like that was to happen in, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever tomorrow, would it be handled better, differently, do you think? It's a great question. I can't see in terms of our resourcing and what we've done in terms of resourcing that we've come, I would say, you know, a really long way since then, but I think there is enough experience, you know, officers at the top now that could definitely use the strategy but in terms of soldiers and you know on the boots on the ground and all that kind of capability stuff i don't know i know at the time it wasn't based on how many resources we had it was more about there were so many things happening and we didn't know the truth until the end and that was the problem and you know you know yourself hindsight's a great thing in the end we didn't lose 10 lives the Stuff that happens in crossfire in terms of ricochets and all this, you, you just can't account for that stuff. It's it's a tragic, tragic turn of events, but, of it's, but it's an accident. Yeah. 
Danny, such an interesting time that you're in the job and, you know, connected to your uh, Lebanese heritage and your language skills and put you at the forefront of, of so many of these extremely sort of interesting and awful situations and cases. Moved on from the police 2017, 18, moved across into the, um, into the private sector. What was behind that, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, um, I got headhunted for a senior role while I was still a sergeant. And look, to me, it came at the right time. My family was growing. If I was ever going to get out, a job like this will do it. So I, I took the plunge. Unfortunately, about, say, six months later, they closed down all their companies and myself and 67 people under me lost their jobs. And after seven days of not sleeping, I decided I'd never work for anyone again. When I wasn't going to go back to the cops. So I, I decided to open up my own business and, and I was consulting in different things. Used my child protection background and my domestic violence investigation background and started to consult in those fields for non-government agencies and then consulting for government in certain child, especially in foster care. I became a specialist sort of in foster care um, investigations and started to get a bit of work, right? I remember I then heard of one of the other officers I used to work with, another sergeant at the time at Campsie, who was a really good investigator. He was out of the job. So I just hit him up on Facebook. What are you doing? We ended up having coffee and um, I found that same thing. Someone promised him the world and couldn't deliver and he was out and he'd been a detective inspector. And so I said, look, I've got a bit of work on. Do you want to take something on? And he just went, yeah. So then I gave him one job, gave him two. He did an amazing job as he would. Just the guy's attention to details next level. And we started to get a lot more work. So we decided, why don't we try to do this as a partnership? I called it the engagement period. Behind the scenes, we're working as 50-50 partners in my company and decided on the 12-month anniversary, we'll make a decision either to launch or part ways. So 12 months comes up and of course, we're in lockdown. So we're like, oh, what the hell do we do now? And we both decided at the same time, after a lot of expletives were said, let's just do it. And so Precision Integrity Services were born. And then we started just him and I running all the investigations in, in private area and the corporate area and legal. Started to work with a lot of lawyers, even consulting them on criminal matters. And then we decided from bitter experience, only recruit really good detectives. Right. So then we were very specific. Every member of my team, I picked this as a certain portfolio so that we could cover all the gamut of proper crimes um, yes. being investigated. So those squad detectives, I just know their stuff. You know, that gun yeah. in the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's who I went for. I didn't want the brass. I don't want the senior boss. I don't want the yep. bosses. I want the guys that did the work. And I'm yeah. very proud of the team we have now. And so it's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah. So you're doing pretty much the same work, just different uniform. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, get to, we get to do this unshackled. It's just, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Fantastic. And, and it's, you know, I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of um, chatting to a number of, um, you know, even more recently retired than yourself, Danny, uh, police. And, um, you know, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? The, um, the, one door shuts, another one opens, and and there's probably not a day that passes in your role now that you're not calling back on some of those skills you got as a young probationary oh, constable running around. Back you yeah. know, the, the favorite, my favorite part of our day is our Monday mornings. Monday mornings, we'll do a briefing on and review all the cases we have, and then we'll go right whiteboard and just the four or five of us will sit in front of a whiteboard and just hash out this investigation. How are we going to find this guy? What has he done? How do we prove this offence? And it was the fun bit of investigations, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, when you're just putting the stuff on the whiteboard and working out, okay, this person, yes. what are the leads? What are the links? Who links to what? And then you look at it and it's just, for everyone else, it's mess. But for us, it's just, that's the science, right? It's just, now we know what we're doing. If I was going to miss something in the police force, it would have been that. Right. And I'm very lucky I get to keep You've that. You've recreated That's yeah. fantastic. And, and so what motivates you now? You love those Monday mornings. You 
there's a part of you, I think, that is always going to be that investigative police officer. And so would it be fair to say that, that you know, that's that motivation to continue to do that right thing by the communities that you're working for? That, is that too twee to say, or is that sort of really what motivates no, you? No, look, the, what I love is impact, right? You know, whatever sphere of my life it is, it's, it's the impact. Uh, to me, if, if I'm contributing something and we, we're, we're making positive impact, then you've got purpose, right? And it's kind of the things you want to instill in your kids. And so the best way to lead is by example. For me, it's been it's been great between like my partner Anthony and I, as we sort of nurture our, our little squad, we enjoy mentoring the guys as well and, and the girls. And we enjoy watching the challenge, you know, so they're still putting their their skills to the test. Our whole industry is about uncovering deception and betrayal. That's, yes. that's what we do. But at least we get to see the positive side. But we also have a really sort of passion for countering domestic violence offenders. Mm-hmm. So we work with frontline DV services a lot. I do a lot of their threat management. And we'll actually sort of train them and upskill. We do a lot of training in that in that realm. As the technology changes and now you can stalk anyone in so many ways, as you'd know, how do we counter that with people that don't have the resources? So we sort of give them those those skills. And it keeps us on the cusp of the tech to make sure that we're ahead of it. We know what we're doing because we have the ability to, you know, to, to scan for, for listening devices, tracking devices, and then how to keep them safe you know, once it's, it's a sanitized car or a sanitized house or whatever it is. And just making sure no one can hack in and the vulnerabilities, all that kind of stuff. So we love doing, especially that, that kind of work with the DV um, victims, we, we absolutely really have a passion for. Anything about that heavier stuff, you know, a young a young constable in the in the middle of those uh, horrendous gang rapes, the, the young cop mate that makes that call back to the station thinking, you know, without being melodramatic, this is it, I'm going to be killed here at Lakemba Mosque. How does how do you carry that with you? You moved on from that? Does that, are there times where you, you know, you go back and rethink about that? Look, what's funny is, I got asked so many times to write a book. Later in life, it was about podcast and TikTok and whatever. And a good friend of mine, David, who, who does great work in social media said, just trust me, just do one TikTok, see what happens. So I do one and just to prove his point, it goes viral, right? And then I'm like, maybe this is something. Anthony does it as well. And we're both sort of putting a bit of TikToks and then we get this media attention and the Telegraph gets involved and they're like, do you want to do a podcast with us? And there's all these kind of things. But I found a bit of therapy in talking through those stories. And when I found, I got so many private messages from, from serving cops that never met me all around the country. Some of them in the US as well going, you know, this resonates. How did you get through this? And then they kept asking me about their own PTSD. Anthony and myself and one of our staff have had a diagnosed with PTSD from what we went through. You know, all of us have almost been killed a couple of times. And, yes. you know, those, those nightmare moments when you sort of wake up in the middle of the night and because it's things you you can't take home, like you don't, especially when I was doing child protection. I did that for eight years straight. I remember my last job there because the little child looked looked like my daughter, and I just went, okay, that's enough for me. It was just getting a bit too close to home. Those emotions still come certain times, you yes. know. Um, it's been so much better after leaving, hundred percent. Like it was so much better after leaving, but it's part of who I am. So I don't have this thing where I have a lot of resentment or, or anything like that. It's, I would have been nicer to have been, you know, if they had mental health was seen as something to be not laughed at mm. back in the day. Um, I think the cops have come a long way, hopefully, or well, I hope they have since those times. But there needed to be a mentorship in that realm, not just teaching you how to do your job. There needed to be something, how do you, you know, vicarious trauma or the, the direct trauma that we come up with. Because it's not just about, oh, that was close. Your brain will go and think a lot of things after that. It's mm. it's never at the moment, as you know, it's always so much yeah, later. It's not so much what happened. Yeah. It's your brain telling you, yeah, but what if this had happened? Yeah, that's right. And what if that hadn't happened? What if those people hadn't stood around? And exactly. What if, it's that stuff, isn't yeah. it? Danny, 
Look, you've both seen a lot and achieved a lot in, in that 18 years. You know, that involvement in some of the biggest crimes. Danny, you did a wonderful job, a wonderful work within your community and the community at large. I, I just want to thank you so much for your service and, and thanks for taking an hour or so out of your day today to, to come in and have a chat to us. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>